it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, so welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 187. Tonight we are going to answer some listener questions that have a bit of a theme to them. We're going to talk a little bit about red flags. We're going to talk about things that maybe give you pause or holding off on investing in a company or different ideas. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first question and Andrew and I will go ahead and do our usual give and take. So let's go ahead and read the first question. This is from Lewis. Uh, I am from the UK and have been tuning into your podcast since the start of the pandemic in March. Thanks to your podcast, I have significantly improved my financial literacy. I have been reading a few annual reports, but I can't seem to make a judgment about which companies not to invest in. I can make such a judgment when looking at metrics because it is black and white. However, with the annual report, everything seems to be positive and I can never find a reason to not invest in a company. After reading an annual report, what makes you decide not to invest in a company, red flags, etc.? Andrew, what are your thoughts on his excellent question? Thanks for that question, Lewis. It's a good one. So I'll, I'll think back to one I did recently with a a company I was looking at. It was a medical distribution company. And so I didn't at the time really know how a medical distribution company worked. And so from the start, when you start to hear from management, they'll tell you how the business works and that can give you, you know, start to get the gears turning. And then you have to try to, to do some hard thinking from there and, and make your conclusions after that. Like you said, there's no black and white answer. That makes it difficult, but hopefully as you get exposed to more businesses, you can start to see things that you like and things that you don't like. So for me, looking at this company that was a medical distributor, they talked about some of the things that affected their revenues. So as an example, they said 
when drug prices go up, that tends to be good for our business. When drug prices go down, that tends to drag on our revenues. And so this was around the same time when Amazon announced that they had essentially opened a type of pharmacy. And so knowing Amazon's background, knowing the way that they built their business, starting with the Kindle, and they drove prices for books in general down quite a bit. And they've driven prices down for shipping and for other things within retail. So I kind of looked at this company because I'm trying to look for the very long term. And I'm trying to ideally get something I can hold for maybe five to 10 years at least. That would be nice. And so I know that when Amazon comes in and they're such a big player that they're going to start to drive prices down. And so while that, that that's probably going to be good for the consumer, um, it's probably going to be good for insurance companies to, to not have to pay such high prices on these drugs. But any other companies that are involved in this kind of value chain are going to probably see some issues. And so what I did just taking that little, it was really just maybe a sentence or two, but that really help me understand that, yeah, this is what drives the business. It drives a big part of the business. And we know that because management's telling us that. And so from there, we can try to think, do we feel bullish about this part of the business or do we feel bearish? Now, that's not to say that this company won't be a great investment. It's not to say that this company won't do very, very well. It's just for me and for what I'm comfortable with and knowing what I know about Amazon, it was something that it's not necessarily a red flag, but it's just something that gave me a reason to not want to buy this company. Dave, do you have any examples like that? I sure do. I actually have two. So the first one I will mention, it's a company that is in a kind of a defensive type of business. It's not glamorous. It's not exciting. It's not sexy by any stretch of the imagination. But as I was reading through the description of the business, which made a lot of sense. I got to the management discussion section and I noticed as I was reading through there that they kept mentioning that they were having special situations improving their income. And at first I was like, hey, it didn't really register. And I just, I kind of kept reading through it. And when I got to the income statement, I noticed the, that they had a section where they had a extraordinary income addition to their income, which made their income look better than it probably really was. And so then I looked at the next year and the same thing and the next year, the same thing. And so I thought to myself, three years of a one-time exception for income, that seems a little fishy. So then I thought, huh, how far back does this go? So I started looking, it went back 10 years and I thought, okay, <laughs> something's going on here. And that's just a little bit too fishy for me. And the reason why I say that is because when you have a, like a one-time exception or a, an extraordinary situation, those words in and of themselves indicate to you that this is a kind of a one-off. This is an ad abnormal thing. This isn't something that happens on a normal basis. And when you start seeing that every single year, then now all of a sudden it's not a one-time exception and it's not an abnormal situation. This is a normal part of their business, but for whatever reason, they're choosing not to 
label it as such. And that made me wonder, what else are they, I guess, stretching in their valuation of the company? And so I thought, okay, uh, this is a no. (laughs) So that just immediately, I just, I stopped what I was doing and I moved on to the next company because that to me was just a big, big red flag because if they're going to, I don't want to say lie, but maybe stretch the truth a little bit about their income, then what else are they going to stretch their tooth on? Uh, the truth on. So there's that. And then the other one that I came across was the use of, of a metric. So when you read through reports, whether it's a quarterly or an annual report, you'll, some, you'll sometimes see terms like adjusted earnings or a situation where maybe they have EBITDA is the focus. And sometimes the companies are doing that to maybe throw you off from the fact that maybe performance wasn't as good as maybe they had projected or they'd hoped or things were not going as well as they overall would hope. And sometimes it's just the nature of the business. Uh, Insurance industry has lots of adjustments to earnings, especially quarterly because of the way that accounting works for insurance companies. So that's in and of itself not that unusual. But when you start seeing things like adjusted EBITDA, because EBITDA is already kind of, uh, in essence, an adjusted metric. And when they start adjusting EBITDA and adding a lot of other things back into the income to make it look better than it really is, then that starts sending up a red flag to me because that, to me, is they're trying to tell you that things aren't really that good, but here's how we're going to spin it so that it's actually okay because EBITDA which is a a terminology that we use which stands for earnings before interest taxes and depreciation and amortization and it's a it's a non-gap financial metric which means that it's a not a an accounting accepted metric that companies will use in finance to help showcase how the company is doing. And it's a great metric to use when you're comparing across industries. It's not necessarily always maybe the best to tell you exactly how the company is doing, but in and of itself, when companies start adjusting a, a metric that's not already accepted by the accounting community as a financially relevant metric, then that to me starts sending out alarm bells, especially when they're using lots of very iffy line items to add back to their their revenue it just makes it just gives me the heebie-jeebies and so when i see stuff like that i'm out i'm done that's just that's too much of a red flag for me so those i guess are a couple companies that kind of sprung to mind when we're talking about this one other example i could give which might not necessarily be a red flag but can help under like give another opinion on on the numbers that you're looking at and so if, if you go to the management discussion um, section, the MDNA, then you can look and they will generally explain to you why revenue moved or why earnings moved. So they might say, hey, you know, profits were up 20% this year because we just bought a new company and, you know, rolled that acquisition into our financials. And so if you you see like a big jump like that from something like an acquisition, being able to read the words like that kind of helps you the picture 
why a company was able to grow and understand whether that's something that's probably sustainable or not. So like another example, I know a lot of the computer companies like computer hardware like HP or Lenovo or Dell, they mentioned in their management discussion sections how the pandemic had created all of this crazy demand. And so obviously their profits and revenues were really high over the past year because of that. And so they'll they'll just type that out for you and you can and you, you can read about it. So um not only will you hopefully find good things to take away from about the businesses themselves, but also as they develop over time through what management says from year to year. One other tip I will give, and hopefully um, you'll take this one to heart, is uh, I think it's very hard to come up with a red flag or a negative opinion on the business when you just read their annual report. Uh, When you start to read the annual reports of their competitors, that's where you can start to see discrepancies between, oh, okay, what this company is doing, which actually sounds good, really isn't that good because here's another company who's doing it probably in a better way. So I guess another example of that would be like, let's say a shipping company where one company owns all of their planes and that sounds very nice. But then you compare that to a competitor who doesn't have to own any aircraft and they mention how that is able to save them on all these costs. And then you can see why their numbers are potentially so much better than a competitor's because they don't have all this capital intensive stuff that they have to maintain. So I think if you try to add, you know, research on the competitors and, and do some comparisons in that way, it might not get you there all the time. And the answer is not always going to be the same all the time, but hopefully that helps you move in that direction and, and start to come up with some good judgments uh, as you move forward. Right, great advice. All right. So I'm going to read this next question. I'm going to leave some of the stuff out because it's a little bit personal. I talked to this listener and reached out to her personally because it was a sad story. So I'm not going to mention her name or anything. Um, But basically, it's an investor from Madrid. And she saw an ad that said that she can make a bunch of money investing in Amazon. She got on a platform called Forex TB. And she said it went very well in the beginning, but then I lost it all. And she had 7,000 euros and now she has 47 euros. And she was asking if she could reinvest those 47 euros in my VTI product and if it would uh, help her make the money back. And so I think anybody who's been listening to the show for a while will know um, it's not reasonable to think that you can make 7,000 euros back with 47 euros. That's just not how the stock market works. And there's, there's not a good reliable way to do that. But I thought we would address it because one, it, it, it's a good example of, of what to look for in a red flag Two, There might be people who, who come across something like this in their investing journey. And hopefully you can steer away from it because this is pretty bad. So what I did is I went on this Forex TB website and mind you, it's not available for uh, U.S. investors. It's not regulated in any way. And so if you scroll down to the bottom of this brokerage website, it says on here, 
and it, it's in bold and it says 77.8% of retail investor accounts lose money when trading CFDs with this provider. So a CFD is something I think that investors should basically just not do. Um, it stands for contract for differences and it's something that's again, not regulated whatsoever. It's traded in, um, certain countries, I guess, like parts of Europe, pretty heavy in parts of Europe, but it's like completely banned in the U S and the problem of it, there's several problems. There's really high commissions. There's a spread that you lose on it. So you're losing in that sense. And it also puts you on leverage too. And, you know, we would never recommend anybody try to invest money on leverage. It's just not a good way to go. And so I think look look out for CFDs. Those are definite red flags. Do not try to trade CFDs. Um, it says right there on the bottom, but you know, I know a lot of us don't go down to the bottom of web pages and, and try to read those things. But in this particular case, it's 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 out there in bold. And so, you know, a, a brokerage operating in Cyprus, that, that's kind of a red flag just on its own. And then if you learn about what CFDs are and, and the fact that you have to trade on leverage and now, you know, you could be losing more money than you put in. And that's, if you know anything about the stock market, you, you don't, there's very few times when you lose all your money in the stock market. And it's, it's definitely not, you can't lose more money than you put into it. Yet when you have these, these weird exotic financial instruments like options or CFDs or anything to do with margin, you can lose money very, very fast. You can lose more money than you put in. And it's just not a good spot to be in, especially if you're first starting out in the stock market. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. 
Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then. Please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. And it's, it's uh, you know, it, when we read through this, it was really sad. And when you told me the story about what she had gone through, I felt really bad for her. And uh, maybe you could take a moment and explain uh, leverage and margin a little bit so people can kind of understand what that kind of is. Yeah, it's basically borrowing money from a broker. So they will, you know, let's say you put $100 in, but you want to start investing like 1000 or 2000 A broker might let you do that. And it's like you're putting a little down payment and you're paying fees to be able to trade on borrowed money. The problem with doing that is, you know, at least with a house, you get to stay in the house as long as you pay the bills. If you're trading on margin, if your trade starts to go the opposite way, they're going to give you what's called a margin call. And so what you have to do now is you have to put up more money in order to just keep your account active and to keep that trade open. And so you could be right on the trade, but be wrong on the timing and not have the margin call filled in, in the right time and still lose. And so, you know, Outside of all of that, I mean, it's just everything about it's bad. You're not compounding money. You are literally losing money as as time goes on. And you have the potential for it to blow up in your face. And the whole the whole issue with the GameStop thing that was several weeks ago, when something like that gets short squeezed, that's from a margin call. And so it's because a lot of different traders need to put up a lot of a lot of money. So there's just a lot of problems with margin. It's very risky, and it's not something I think the average investor should look at. I would agree with that. Thank you for explaining that. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next question. So I have, hello, Andrew. I just recently started listening to your podcast. Really appreciate you and your knowledge and how you break things down so simply and thoroughly. And SPAC, I was reading up on it, but still not clearly what and how to research on our preferable ones to invest in. Also, not very clear what's the big attraction in investing in a SPAC IPO. 
I tried to go through your past episodes and see if you had already talked about this, but I didn't find any. If you have already talked about these topics, would you kindly direct me to the episode numbers? Well, we haven't, Ellie. So Ellie was the person who wrote us this. So, Andrew, I know you know a little bit about SPACs. So would you like to, I guess, uh, drop some knowledge on us, please? Yeah. So she doesn't understand the big attraction. Neither do I. It's it's basically you're giving it's a blank check thing and you're giving somebody else the ability to invest for you. And so okay, there there are some attractive features of it. But basically what it is, if if I try to lay it out in a let's say a story. So let's say that we all thought Michael Jordan was a great investor and we just all wanted to give him some money so he could go invest for us. So this is basically what a SPAC is. So let's say I would give him a hundred bucks. Dave, you give him a hundred bucks. Some people from the audience give him a hundred bucks and we tell him, Hey, go, go find us a company to invest in. And so some of the money goes to fees. Some of it goes to like a management fee. You get shares diluted, but at the end of the day, after all the stuff gets netted out, out of that $100, you have maybe $80 of value that's yours that is represented in whatever the new company is. Now, if you're like one of the first people to give Michael Jordan money, you might have like a, a like a warrant, which gives you some additional claims and some additional options. But not all investors are getting in, that are getting into SPACs are doing it early and they're not all getting these warrants, which was kind of the whole financial point of, of having some sort of an advantage with it. But basically, you know, you're, you're putting a lot of trust in somebody else to go out and buy a company. And so why it's attractive is because a lot of IPOs that you could think of, name some, who, what are some recent ones? Like, um, Oh gosh, uh, DoorDash, uh, yeah. Airbnb are two that spring to mind recently. And those are, I mean, those are hugely popular, right? Because it feels like everybody uses those. Those are some hot apps and um, everybody wanted to get in on it. And so IPO, there's some problems there because it's kind of expensive. You got to pay the investment bankers. You don't really always get early access as a, as an average investor. So the SPAC is, is a little bit different than that. It's, it's a little bit more direct. You don't have to deal with the IPOs, but you're still you're still running into this problem where for one, you don't know what company that Michael Jordan's going to pick for us. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of scary. Number two, once he picks the company, they don't have to follow the same rules that somebody like a DoorDash or Airbnb would have had to follow in order, as far as like disclosing financial information and going through crossing their, T's and dotting their eyes. So that's kind of scary. And then you have the fact that in 2020, a lot of them didn't do well. I think of it almost like small businesses, you know. We we kind of all know that a lot of small businesses don't do well, but you don't hear about the small businesses that don't do well. They just kind of go away, right? We always hear stories about the most successful ones and, and the biggest ones that got so massive, right? And then had such great success. You don't hear the stories of the ones that fade away, and and SPACs are very similar. IPOs are actually similar to that too, and it's just because capitalism is just very a very intense place, and a lot of it takes a lot of failure to to bring out really the best of companies. And so, 
it, it's not a good deal in my opinion. I don't like the fee structure. I don't like the incentives. I don't like the fact that you don't know what you're putting your money into other than it's a person. And so those are some of the things that I think make SPACs scary and, and, and the reason why we don't recommend them. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, amen to that. I, I, I know almost nothing about them and I don't really care to. So call me old fogey. <laughs> that's fine, but it's, it's outside of my circle of competence and I have a hard enough time figuring out the different companies to invest in. And that's knowing the ones that I can learn about. So putting my money into although albeit I do love Michael Jordan as much as the next person, but <laughs> I don't know that I want to give him my hard earned money to go buy whatever he wants. So yeah, not for me. Uh, yeah. He's not, I don't think he has a spack. It seems like I wouldn't be surprised if he did though. It seems like everybody is. Yeah. True. True. Very good point. So let's wrap it up with this last question. And this one, Dave is going to, really take it out of the park for us so this was another part the first part of ali's question she says um i'm really interested in tagging on this semiconductor train that's really been speeding up however i'm afraid it's already faster than i can catch on what do you think of intel seems like things have been a bit tough for it and its stock price is still a reasonable range for me to consider also can semiconductor etfs be a good alternative to buying into one particular stock even though they're all pretty high up there. All right, Uh, Ellie, this is a really good question. And so here are some thoughts on how you can latch on to the semiconductor train. Uh, Yes, the by and large, a lot of the companies that you look at in this uh, field are expensive. They have all got very high metrics. Uh, They are very rich if you want to try to buy onto that train. Uh, AMD, TSMC, uh, NVIDIA, all those companies, all great companies. So the, the when I say that these companies are expensive or I don't air quote recommend them, it has nothing to do with the actual product that they're making or the performance of the company, all fantastic. It's just a matter of thinking about it this way. Uh, when you go buy an iPhone, and you say that the iPhone is is selling for $800. Most of us are willing to pay $800 for it. And if we can find it for $600 and it's still the great same quality as the $800 one, we're going to jump all over it. But if you were going to go buy that iPhone and now it's selling for $2,700, you might not be so enthusiastic about getting that $800 phone for three times that price kind of the same deal when you're buying some of these stocks. So when you think about a company like AMD, who is kind of the up and coming kid in the semiconductor world, it's a great company and they're doing fantastic things. They're growing their revenues like a weed and they're doing really, really well. So Intel has kind of been uh, stepping on their own feet uh, recently. Uh, They've gone through a management change uh, recently. They brought in a new uh, CEO, so the old guy had been there, old guy, the, the person that had been there uh, roughly a couple years, uh, frankly, had no background in tech. Uh, he was more of a number cruncher, and he wasn't really a designer or had worked in the semiconductor field p- 
prior to working as the CEO for Intel. So I think a lot of people felt like he was driving the train to use Ali's allegory there, uh, that he was driving the train in the wrong direction. So the company has been a market leader for decades. And recently they have kind of stumbled in the race to get a quicker, faster semiconductor chip. And they have really kind of dropped the ball on some of those things. And so that has allowed uh, AMD in particular to kind of start to take some market share away from them. So the company is still huge and they still dwarf uh, a company like AMD. It, as a matter of fact, AMD did more in R&D research last year than, a, I'm sorry, Intel did more in R&D research as far as expense than AMD did in revenues for the whole year. So it, it's a massive company and they they have a lot going for them. They are one of the few companies here in the United States that makes chips here in the United States. And I'll come back to that here in just a second. And they also have been a leader in working with a, a variety of different realms as far as the tech world goes. It also has the advantage of on a relative basis as far as stock price and any other metric you look at, it's cheap. But you could argue that it's cheap because of some of the stumbles that they've had. So they've lost out on the the race to be the the smallest fastest chip. I think I think AMD and TSMC who are other big players in this field are producing chips around the 5nn if I'm correct and I think Intel is still playing around the 10 or 8. So they're a little bit behind. It doesn't mean they can't catch up, but they are behind. So here's where some of the strengths that Intel has. Number one, they have size. Number number two, they have a lot of advantages as far as market share goes, working with uh, laptops as well as other producers. They kind of have a legacy tech right now that is allowing them to kind of stay in the game. The other advantage they have is they make their own semiconductor chips. They have their own foundry, and so they produce quite a bit of their own product in-house, which saves them a lot of money and a lot of time. And it also allows them to control the production, whereas AMD, for example, has to outsource all the production of their chips, which means that once the design is done, it's kind of out of their hands and they don't have any control of how much they can supply the people that are demanding their chips. So recently, the United States, as well as a large part of the world, has been going through a a semiconductor crunch in chips. In other words, we're running out. So this has really been big news in the auto industry. Uh, GM, Ford, Tesla, all these companies are struggling to find enough chips to put in their cars because even though a lot of these cars are not electric outside of Tesla, they still need semiconductor chips for the computers that are in their in their cars. And because of COVID-19 and other things that have gone on, there's been a shortage of semiconductor chips. So one of the things that I heard recently, uh, the president, the new president, Joe Biden, uh, was mentioning that he thinks that the United States needs to kind of step up its game. And he's proposing adding more money to encourage the development of semiconductor production here in the United States. Well, that is music to anybody that is investing in Intel because 
as one of the leaders in the Intel, or I'm sorry, in the semiconductor world, that is going to probably lead to them being able to tap into that money to grow their expertise in producing these chips and will definitely vault them to a bigger portion of the market share. So those are all things that I think bode well for Intel now and into the near future, at least for the next three to five years. And then as far as the second part of her question, the semiconductor ETFs, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not as up on those as I probably should be, but I would imagine that there will probably be some options out there if you don't want to pick one particular company, if you don't want to pick a company like Intel, for example, for whatever reason, you think they're too far behind or you don't think that there's an opportunity for them to catch up or they've lost too much market share and the momentum is not with them, whatever it may be. And those are all valid concerns for sure. But whatever that may be, if you want to switch to using an ETF, which would allow you to kind of get your hands into all of those companies like NVIDIA and AMD, TSMC, and so on, then that would be a great way to go as well. So I, I, I hope that helps answer your question or give you some, some guidance on that. Andrew, did you have anything else you'd like to take on to my little diatribe there? <laughs> That's a good one. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank everybody for reaching out to us and sending us those fantastic questions. Keep them coming, guys. This is awesome. You guys are sending us some really great stuff. Gives us a chance to really dive into some things and help you guys learn a thing or two. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.